This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. The Lord Jesus declared in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Now, that was a revolutionary and some believed blasphemous declaration that this man would proclaim himself to be God. And yet we do know Jesus is God, God the Son, and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are the other two persons of the Trinity, one God in three persons. We also know the Trinity is clearly revealed in Scripture, but it's also a deep mystery with no adequate analogy to explain it. If you have kids, you know that that's the truth. Yet in considering some of the deep questions many have about God's attributes, there are answers to be found by understanding the nature of the Trinity. And that's what my next guest has done in his latest book. So joining us today is Dr. Vern Poitras, Distinguished Professor of New Testament, Biblical Interpretation, and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. His book is called The Mystery of the Trinity, A Trinitarian Approach to the Attributes of God. So good to have you with us, Dr. Poitras. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Sure thing. Well, why do you think it is important to do it this way, to explore God's attributes through a specifically Trinitarian approach? Yes, that's a good question. But uh, over the centuries, when people have gotten into, been influenced by unbelieving philosophy, then they've tried to deal with God, as it were, in the abstract. Let's just reason out what God is like. So they may end up saying, well, God is all-powerful, and He's infinite, and He is unchanging. They may get a few things, but they don't get them quite right, (laughs) because they can't properly understand how God relates to us and how He's able to create a world. That involves things that are differentiated within God. For instance, when God creates the world, he does it by speaking. Well, the speech of God can, in a sense, be distinguished from God, and yet it issues from God. Well, that goes back to the fact that God is one God in three persons, and the second person is called the Word. He's the speech of God. So that actually helps us with understanding how God can be the same and create the world. Well, that's a good point. You're right, because the more we look at the three persons and the one God in the Trinity, the more we can see different angles on God and why things are true. And you're totally right about that. But when you're looking at some of these attributes, you focus on some very important attributes of God, things like his immutability, his omniscience, his omnipresence, even his simplicity. Now, on the issue of divine simplicity, what is that doctrine? Because people will say, for example, God is not not simple. How, what is divine simplicity? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> well, it's perhaps not a good label in some ways. It's become a technical term. So when you hear somebody say God is simple, they don't mean what the ordinary person thinks yeah. uh, you mean, because the ordinary person means, well, simple to process, right? Simple to understand. Yeah. Um, but simplicity is actually the opposite of having parts. So you can't cut God up into parts. And the persons of the Trinity are not three parts of God 
who together make up one God, yeah. because that would make each one of them a third of a God. Right? That's blasphemous. You know, when it says that the Word was God, for instance, in John 1, it's not saying he's a part of God, but that he is God. Yes. Yes. That's much harder to process for us, because God is infinite, and we can't understand him exhaustively, fully, comprehensively. So it's easy for people to fall into a picture where they picture three parts of God. When God doesn't have parts. An apple, you can cut it up into three parts or more parts, right? Right. You can't cut God up, partly because he's a spirit. He's not uh, spatially, um, you know, confined the way an apple is. But in addition, even conceptually, you can't cut him up into concepts that would lie in back of him. So we say, for instance, that God is unchangeable or that he is eternal. The idea of eternality or the idea of unchangeability is not something in back of God that already exists, and then suddenly God comes into the picture and he's forced to conform to something outside of him, because mm. that would be, to be for him to be less than God. He is ultimate. Right. He is who he is. So eternity is not something in back of God, but just one aspect of who God is. So that's important, too. And you'd say, well, the average person doesn't worry about this, and it's just as well. But again, philosophers, when they get into this kind of thing, they're tempted to look for something in back of God that would be a more ultimate explanation of who he is. Mm -hmm. Well, such a more ultimate explanation doesn't exist because God is ultimate. But you can get yourself into trouble about that, and so the, the word simplicity is meant to guard us from doing that kind of thing, and to say, no, you can't break him up conceptually either into concepts that would be more ultimate than who he is. Right. But I should say, the, the idea of God's simplicity has been defined in several different ways, and part of the problem is that some of the definitions bring in some bad philosophy and make God inaccessible to us. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And and you get into that in your book. And you're also addressing these questions. I'm not sure if we'll be able to get to all of them. I would love to, but we've got limited time. One of which is, how can God be independent and yet have relations to the world and the things in the world? I mean, how should we understand this premise that God is independent. Obviously, he has no need of anyone or anything, and yet he does have a relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Some people do wonder about that. If, if God doesn't need anybody, why are we here? Right. Well, one answer is to say that there are relations between the persons in God. So the Father loves the Son and gives the Holy Spirit to him eternally. This is all mysterious. But the relations in God are the foundation for the fact that God can manifest who he is in relations to us. He can establish relations to us because that's in accord with who he already is. Now, that's mysterious, but it's true. Now, if you want, you can use a human analogy in saying, hey, we're finite, so it's not, it is an analogy, we're not God, and we never will be. But if you think of a mature person who's well-established, who's, who's um, grown into a full and rich personality and who has confidence in who he is, that kind of person is actually more able to establish 
fruitful relationships with other people. Hmm. Because he's stable in who he is, well, that's a kind of analogy to say it's precisely because God is independent, that he's stable in who he is, that he doesn't have needs, that he can establish wonderful relations with us. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. What about the aspect of God's love? Would you find any kind of a Trinitarian explanation for that question? Oh, yes, because it is said in uh, John 3, 34 and 35, and and John 5 as well, right in the Bible, the Father loves the Son, and it's an eternal reality. So love existed in God, and love between the persons, as well as our ability to say God is love, right? Mm. Uh, That existed in God before ever there was a world. Sometimes people make the mistake of saying, well, God had to make a world because he needed somebody to love. No, he didn't. <laughs> there's already eternal and infinite love among the persons of the Trinity. Yeah. Do you then sometimes get a joker saying, how can God love himself? Isn't that narcissistic? I mean, I, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere who's tried to raise that point kind of blasphemously, but is that a problem at all philosophically? Uh, well, it isn't from a standpoint of the Bible's teaching. And again, people, if, if they think independently of God and they try to work out as if our minds could dictate who God is, then they can tie themselves in all kinds of knots. True. But if we see, we just begin by saying, who does God show himself to be? Then, of course, he's going to love himself because he's perfectly lovely. Exactly. Right? That's the only thing. But, but that, that it doesn't compete with the fact that he loves us. And I'll tell you it what. goes back to what you yourself said, that he doesn't have any needs. The person who is a needy person tends, if they try to love people, it tends to be a kind of clinging and exploitive type of thing, which isn't yep. really love at all. Hang on a moment. We'll come back with Dr. Vern Poitras. Stay with us. From Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine comes American Underdog. Undrafted out of college, quarterback Kurt Warner found himself stocking grocery shelves while trying to hold on to his dream to play in the NFL. I have been working for this my entire life. God is going to do something great with you. Based on the true story, American Underdog. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere Christmas Day. More information is available at AmericanUnderdogInspires.com. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. He's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. 
Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Dr. Vern Poitras from Westminster Theological Seminary, where he serves as Distinguished Professor of New Testament, Biblical Interpretation, and Systematic Theology. He's out with a great book called The Mystery of the Trinity, A Trinitarian Approach to the Attributes of God. And Dr. Poitras, I have to apologize. I shouldn't ask those kinds of questions when we have just a few seconds before we have to go to the break. I apologize for that. But there's just so much to discuss here, a Trinitarian explanation for all of these attributes of God that you're addressing in this book. But another question that you delve into in this book is the question of how can God be immutable, that is, unable to change, and act toward the world? So are there boundaries around God's immutability? Would you say it's indicative more of God's character than his actions? Because clearly he's not able to change. I, the Lord, do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what the Bible says. And yet God is active in his world at the same time. How should we understand immutability and how does the Trinity give us a a better picture of of the resolution, I guess, to this question? Yes, well, that's a big question. For instance, in Psalm 102 that ends up saying, you are the same and you're Years have no end, affirming the sameness of God throughout the um, uh, throughout all time. But that same psalm uh, praises God for having created the world. Hmm. <laughs> so in the Bible, there's there's really no tension between those two things. And the ultimate reason is found, as you have already mentioned, in the Trinitarian character of God that there's eternal activity of love and eternal activity of the Father speaking the Son. And that kind of activity, which is absolutely uh, compatible with God being unchanging because it's eternal activity, it's out of that activity that we see also differentiated activities in the world. Now, again, you can use a human analogy and say, Again, the person who is a, an adult person who's got a rich and fully developed personality, that is the person who is stable in himself, who's faithful, right, that we can count on to, to tell the truth and to be, be uh, come through with his promises. It's that kind of person who is able uh, richly to interact with the world. Yes. And uh, again, you can use the example of, for instance, God being um, a God of justice, that he's going to reward uh, the good and punish the evil, consistent with his being the same God. So he's going to do different things at different times, precisely because he is the same. Yes. So, so really, you know, when you think about it in a biblical way, actually many of these things that seem to be problems, they sort of dissolve, and you say, well, that isn't really a problem because of who God is. 
True. That's a good point. And you know what else pops into my head is you think about Psalm 110, where it says the Lord has sworn and will not repent. Talking about thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then you have other verses where it talks about God repenting. You know, Genesis 6, 6, God's repentance for making man on the earth as it repented the Lord, it says in one translation. And people will read those verses and say, how could God repent? God has nothing to repent of. So is that part of this bigger picture as well? Right. Well, one of the problems here is that we've got a record. One of the challenges, I should say, is we've got to recognize that when the Bible uses a word with respect to God, it's not going to mean exactly the same thing as we associate it with every instance of human repentance or relenting. Some of the translations are different, but it basically means God is doing one thing, and then he comes to a point, and he reverses and goes in a different direction and does something else. Right. But, of course, that's partly because the situation has changed. Yeah. And so, again, when a just God is going to, in evaluating situations, he's going to do different things at different times. One of the famous instances that I actually deal with in my book is in First Samuel chapter 15, because it talks about that uh, God is regretting that he made Saul king, And then a little later, in the same chapter, it says that God does not have regret. Hmm. Twice it says it. And, And so what do you do with that? Well, it's clear that God has put that whole chapter together, and there are actually four verses that use the language of regret, and two of them he doesn't regret, and the other two he does regret. Well, God put that passage there as a whole in order that we would look at it very carefully and say, look... There's different contexts for those statements. And once we try to sort out what does it mean in context and not just say with a general reaction, well, make up your mind, does he regret something or does he not? It, look at the context and what's happening, and you'll see that the earlier statement where God regrets that he made Saul king is basically part of a judicial evaluation. Hmm. It's, it's in the light of the failure of Saul and his behavior as king. Now, of course, God knew from the very beginning what would happen. But there, at that point in, in uh, the, the text, he is standing as judge evaluating what Saul has done, and so he's going to remove him from the kingship. So that isn't exactly—it isn't like—and this is the other thing—it isn't like a man regretting, because typically when we say, oh, I regretted that decision, it's because we have further information uh, that we didn't have, and we say, well, you know, if I'd known what I knew now, (laughs) then I would never have made such such a decision, right? I regret that decision because I was a finite person who didn't have the information that I should have had. Well, God is not not like us in that dimension, right? Because he already knows everything. But he is saying... He's evaluating things in terms of what all has already happened. So it's you got to go into a passage taking account a lot of context. And sometimes there are passages, and I think God, of course, he knew what he was doing. He put that chapter there, 
And it's a challenging chapter. He knew that people would look at it and say, what's going on here? (laughs) So it's actually an invitation to kind of slow down and take it carefully and think what is actually being said here. Right. Context matters and understanding the greater picture of what's being said in that chapter, as you said, matters a lot. As does this point of analogical language, which is what you talk about when you're answering this question about how descriptions that some people see as unworthy of God could be used to describe him in Scripture. That's what you're getting at. Um, Something else that I think is very intriguing is the question that you address, how can finite man truly know the infinite God? Now, when you are giving a Trinitarian answer to that question, obviously the incarnation comes into play, right? Because God became man, so there the infinite became finite, and yet he's still infinite. How do you take that one and and answer that for people who truly don't understand how we can know an infinite God if we are, in fact, finite? All right. Well, yeah, excellent question. And again, there are going to remain mysteries here. But one of the aspects is, even before the incarnation, and then man was made in the image of God. That's Genesis 1. Yeah, yes. So we're not like animals. We have, we have many capabilities that are superior to the animal kingdom. But one of them is our capacity for religious relationship and our capacity for deep knowledge. So you can say it's precisely because God made us, crafted us from the beginning to be recipients of knowledge of him. He knew what he was doing. Hmm. Now, we can't sort of step behind the curtain, as it were, and pretend that we are God so that we could see in detail exactly what that means. I mean, that's the temptation to be God. We'll never (laughs) be God. We'll never understand things to the very bottom. But can we accept, because we trust God, can we accept yeah, he made me with this kind of capacity. And as people read the Bible and they ask God himself through the Holy Spirit, they ask God himself, help me to understand this, people find more and more they do understand, right? Yeah. So they gain in confidence, actually God is showing me who he really is. Wow. Right? Not on the level so that I could, I could be God uh, and know him as, he, as only he knows himself. But on the level of, I really have confidence that God has shown me what kind of God he is, who he is. And Jesus, uh, in uh, John 17, does something similar. He says, this is eternal life, that they, they know, that is the disciples, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And yes. then he goes on to talk about the fact that I have given to the disciples the word which you gave me. Yeah. So this is important. I think this is a really important subject, actually, because I think of what the Bible says about eternity in our hearts. I mean, we are finite, but yet we will have eternal life. So we're not God. We could never become God. But there is an infinite component because we are created in God's image in the first place. Right. There's a relationship that's, that God has made possible. Yes. With who he is as the infinite God. Yeah, that's right. Do you feel that when we're talking about the mystery of the Trinity, that it's important to emphasize the confines of the Bible, not going beyond the confines of the Bible in order to discern the mystery of the Trinity? Because this is where we sometimes fall into a trap, don't we? Trying to understand God, his ways are not our ways. There's a, a sense in which we cannot completely fully understand him as human beings. Right. Yeah, it's a difference between obedience to God where you trust him and saying, I really 
trust that you've given me the lowdown, so to speak, to use an American <laughs> expression, right? The lowdown on who you are, particularly in this climactic revelation in Christ. Does that give us the real God, or are we satisfied with that, or are we looking for something more? Really good. If we're looking for something more, then we'll go outside the Bible, or underneath the Bible, or, you know, some kind of extra thing, and then we get ourselves into trouble. We sure do. Well, it's a great book, The Mystery of the Trinity by Dr. Vern Poitras. Check it out. It's just fantastic. And so good to have you with us, Dr. Poitras. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. What do you do if you become a slave to your smartphone? Well, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you might say, I am not a slave to my phone. But is that true for your teenager? Likely not. Even if both you and your teen are overly attached to your screens, you can be screen wise and connect with the people around you more effectively. Joining me now is author and youth culture expert Jonathan McKee, and he is here to talk about this, along with his latest book, Teen's Guide to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World, 40 Tips to Meaningful Communication. And Jonathan, it's great to talk to you again. How are you? Oh, man, I am good. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's very good to be here. Well, thank you. I I think this book is kind of interestingly timed since a lot of us could use more face-to-face communication right now. Uh, Everything seems to be on Zoom. What what do you make about this whole plot twist on your thesis that young adults need more (laughs) face-to-face contact when that's exactly what everybody seems to want right now? Exactly. No, it is is interesting how timely the book is actually uh, became, but I think more, even more interesting is the fact that even, you know, pre COVID there was this kind of um, this desire from teens to connect face to face. And I know sometimes adults would tend to be skeptical there and say, man, you know, I know that with my own teenager that every time I look at him, he's just staring at his device and I can't, you know, won't even pry his eyes up from his device. You know, I I hear that a lot, you know, um, and two things to consider one the fact that we as adults actually, according to most studies, the guys who actually count up the numbers and add up how much screen time we spend per day, most adults actually clock in more screen time than teenagers. Wow. Sorry, more screen time when you <laughs> add up the TV and the phone and all that up. You know, the other thing that's interesting is um, when teenagers were actually surveyed um, about this and saying, you know, hey, how much do you, you know, how do you feel about the amount of screen time you're spending and all that kind of stuff? Um, teenagers were actually um, uh, said, as a matter of fact, almost 70% of them said, I would actually prefer to spend more time face to face than screen to screen. And that was, that was pre, that was just going into COVID. Wow. So now, of course, in COVID, I think it's almost been proven because we're starting to see a lot of people getting restless and we're seeing teenagers say, well, of course I'd rather be hanging out with my friends than this. You know, we, we see that restlessness so evident. And um, it's one of those things where I think they want to, 
but they don't necessarily know how. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why we wrote this book is to, to kind of start engaging in these conversations about what does this actually look like? Yeah, it, it, that's a really important point that COVID has really made a lot of teenagers more aware that face-to-face isn't so bad. It's actually preferable when you're not allowed to do it as much as you were pre-pandemic. This is interesting, though, because you are tackling this subject with the help of your daughter, Alyssa. Can you talk a little bit about Alyssa's experience? Because I know she took a break from Instagram. She's a young adult herself. What sorts of experiences did she have that impacted the way that you're addressing the issue in the book? Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. Because basically what we, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was fun writing with her because, you know, very unique. You know, I've got a 20-something writing it with me. And one of the things is she was actually born in 1995. And that, and that puts her in a unique time. And a lot of people be like, well, what's so special about that? Well, what it did is it put her in 2012 in her junior and her senior year of high school. Hmm. Now, 2012 is not only the year that America crossed the 50% mark for everybody having smartphones in their pocket. So, so picture what that looked like on a typical high school campus. All of a sudden, by her junior and senior year, there was this transition from the old just texting and talking phones to smartphones. That was happening during her junior and senior year. Not only that, 2012 was also the year that Snapchat came out. It was the year that Instagram became a thing. So what she basically noticed was all of a sudden in 2012, her junior and senior year, all she noticed this transition that basically changed communication as we know it. You know, there's less talking face-to-face, more heads buried in Instagram, more DMs being sent. You know, um, she even said that, you know, car rides that used to be kind of full of conversation were kind of a little bit more people with their heads now buried because they had social media in their pocket. So for her, it was a big change. And one of the things she talked about in her um, chapter titled Instagratification is she talked specifically about the effects of social media on her. And she talked and she gave examples of what that looked like. And I love having a young person's perspective because for her, you know, one of the things she did, she um, described a day where she was hanging out with her friends and they were going to do this fun road trip where they were going to this fun event. There was, a, you know, at the beach. And, and she said for her and her friends, it was crazy because they almost spent more time trying to find the insta-perfect picture mm-hmm instead of actually enjoying the event. And then she said that when they were posting the pics that they made him, they made her feel terrible about herself because she thought, man, I don't look good. Everybody else looks better. And for her, the whole day just made her feel, she said, it took me to some unhealthy places. And, and, And she's not down on the phone. She's not even specifically down on Instagram. But for her, she said, it was time for a change. So she just, decided I'm going to take a fast from Instagram and she took a break. She decided to take a break for a year and she goes into much more detail in the book and she talks about it, but it was fascinating to see because also for her, as much like I love it later in the book, she describes this day where she's hanging out with her friends and she's driving with this one particular friend in a convertible. And as they're driving down the road, wind whipping through their hair she says it was so nice not having the pressure to post the picture, but to just enjoy the moment. Yeah. And that's why we wrote the book. 
to start talking about that stuff. You know, I, I really understand that because the world has changed a lot. I know my husband and I have both observed that had we gotten engaged in the Instagram era, we would have been hating it because we're not the selfie sorts. We're not really into that or getting a perfect picture <laughs> of him proposing on the beach or anything like that. And I thought, yeah, there but, you go, there you go. yeah I mean, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's just not my generation's way of getting engaged because we didn't have that kind of stuff. But but, but this is a, pr- a, a pressure point. I think you've brought up something very important and your daughter has too the pressure point of feeling like because of what i see on my smartphone particularly the social media it just makes you think a different way it it makes you insecure in different ways and we've seen a lot of this i think especially with girls haven't we this pressure to look yeah. perfect and to be like we we already had that with magazine covers now it's just taken up about 40 notches yeah, no, absolutely. And the, and the pressure is having effects on kids in different ways. And we're seeing it, um, we're, we're seeing it affecting their mental health. We're seeing it affect their physical well-being because some of the dangers they're putting themselves into. The, the mental health thing is an interesting thing because when you look at that, um, there was actually a bunch of experts who decided to, to kind of clear the record there. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, right Going into COVID and through the beginning of COVID, Dr. Gene Twinge and Dr. Jonathan Haidt, they decided to get together and say, okay, let's, let's talk about this. Let's, let's, let's set the record straight because there was kind of some debate about, well, you know, is, is it really, um, you know, is screen time affecting young people's mental health? And, and there was some debate. There were some people saying, come on, you know, does how much time my daughter spends, you know, watching Netflix or my son? you know, uh, playing video games, does that really affect them? And what they decided to do is they said, let's look at this and let they created an open source document and said, everybody chime in with your findings. Let's look at this and let's see exactly how much this affects people. The fascinating thing was they, not so much what they disagree on, but what they agreed on. And all the experts, when they really pulled their data together and looked, they said, okay, what do we agree on? And what they agreed on was two things. One, there was a mental health crisis going into COVID. This is pre-COVID. There was a mental health crisis uh, going on right now where we're seeing, you know, suicide, anxiety, um, all this stuff spiking like like none before at, at astronomical levels. The second thing they all agreed on is that when you look at screen time in general, it wasn't necessarily such clear data that Netflix or video games really affect young people. But when you narrow the search to just the effects of social media, specifically on girls, the data is clear and conclusive. Goodness. Hang on a moment, Jonathan. Hang on just a second. I'm so sorry. We have to run to a very quick break. We'll pick up the conversation right after this with Jonathan McKee, Teen's Guide to -to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only 
$5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. A mother's womb has now become the unsafest place in America, with abortion being the leading cause of death and babies being aborted up to term in some states. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, helping moms choose life. You see, when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help save 400 babies by the end of this year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. And now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving 10 babies' lives. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Jonathan McKee is here, author and youth culture expert. You can find more at thesourceforparents.com. That's the website, and it is the number four, thesourceforparents.com. He and his daughter, Alyssa McKee, are out with a great book, Teen's Guide to -to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World, and these are 40 Tips to Meaningful Communication. Jonathan, before we went to the break, you were talking about some of the data on this issue of screen time affecting mental health, and you were talking about the aspect aspect of this data that pertains to social media. When you really focus on social media, what kind of effect does that have on teenagers, specifically the girls? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy when you look at it because, again, it's not so much how much screen time they're spending. All screen time is not created equal. It's not how much time they're spending on Netflix. It's not how much you know time they're spending video gaming or whatever. But social media in particular is, put, is creating a pressurized environment for young people. And so because of that, we're starting to see some of these spikes in depression and anxiety, suicide attempts. I mean, um, a lot of people have seen the recent uh, Netflix special um, called The Social Dilemma. And as a matter of fact, that same doctor, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, was one of the guys there talking about the effects of anxiety on young people there and what we're starting to see. So as parents, we need to start paying attention to this. And one of the things we need to do is we need to start creating conversations. And so that's honestly why my daughter and I wrote this book. We thought, you know, sometimes parents would love to talk about this, but they don't know exactly how to talk about it. They don't know what to say. I mean, what do you just say? Phones are bad. Oh, excuse me. I got to take this. I'm on my own phone. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of hypocritical. So, so this is a this is a way for us to kind of create a conversation, and because uh, I mean each chapter we wrote is kind of talking about some of the things that are going on here, and then we have discussion questions at the end of each chapter, so that that you can dialogue about what this looks like. 
Well, this is important. And, you know, here I'm showing my dinosaur cred here. But, you know, the, the things that I say to my kids often is, do any of you people actually talk on the phone anymore? <laughs> I mean, do we really need the phone aspect of the phone? Because it doesn't seem, apart from the internet and apart from the texting, that there's much usage of the phone. And I'm told, oh, no, we don't talk on the phone anymore. But, I mean, what about that? What about going back to talking on the phone? It would seem that having, even if you're not able to be face-to-face, having an actual conversation is preferable to everything being online. How, how do you weigh in on that particular issue? Yeah, well, you know, we talked about that in the book. As a matter of fact, one thing we did is we uh, weighed the difference between um, texting, talking, FaceTime, and then good old-fashioned face-to-face, like yeah. the person that's right there in front of you. And one of, the, one of the things we kept saying over and over again in the book is, you know, hey, uh, this phone's a great tool for connecting with people outside the room when it doesn't interfere with our relationship with the people inside the room. Yeah. And, and again, that, that's one of the things we're, we're, we're saying, don't, don't throw this thing away. We're not saying that the phone's a bad tool. It actually can be a very effective tool. But, you know... Sometimes we just need to put the thing in our pocket and enjoy the person that's right there in front of us. That's good advice. That's good advice. Although sometimes it is difficult for even adults to be able to do that. What about the issue of addiction? Addiction to your phone? Because I've seen articles along those lines and concerns that some experts have raised about the fact that social media in particular is designed to keep you addicted. It's like the Lay's potato chips of your smartphone in a way. You know, there's stuff built into the system to keep, keep you coming back. What do you do about that? Yeah, there's fascinating research, and we talk a little bit about the dopamine hits and, and what it does to your brain, because in essence, you know, there are certain things out there like a slot machine, for example, you know, um, that is kind of designed to kind of get you to anticipate the next great thing. And when you look at some of the stuff that um, um, that that people that design social media, and again, that's that's where that, uh, that documentary on Netflix is fascinating, because they talked about that you literally saw people that, that designed some of this stuff admitting they're on something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My job was to try to get people to stay on our app <laughs> as long as possible. <laughs> so when you're seeing the effects of this, and we live right now, we live in a country where 79% of teenagers take their phone into the bedroom with them at night, every night. 79%. And uh, our family doctor forever has been saying, no screens in the bedroom. Well, eight out of 10 parents are not listening to that advice, yeah. you know, because yeah. eight out of 10 young people are sitting there saying, no, let me just, let me bring this phone into the bedroom with me at night. It's not a good idea. So we talk with young people about this. This is a book addressed to young people. And we say, hey, have you thought about, you know, what this is doing in your brain? Have you thought about how this affects your sleep? Have you thought about how this affects your relationships? Instead of just telling kids what to do, because no kid wants to be told what to do. We give some information. We tell tons of stories throughout the book and basically say, okay, hey, take a look at this. What do you think? And then again, we provide discussion questions because this is something where we hope that young people will talk with their friends about. We hope that mom and dad won't just hand this book to their kid, but they'll better yet say, hey, let's go to breakfast this Tuesday and, and let's talk about this. 
Yep. Let's talk about the effects of this on our conversation. And that's what we want to do. We want to create conversation. Well, and Jonathan, when you were making the point about phones being a good tool, but they shouldn't interfere with connecting to people who are there physically with you in the room. And one of the things you, you cite in here is the passage in Luke 10 with Jesus and Mary and Martha. And, you know, the Lord says, you know, you're worried and upset about many things, Martha, but few things are needed. Only one thing is needed. What about the effect on your spiritual growth as a young Christian? I'm thinking of all of this data that's come out about biblical illiteracy and how little people are reading, but in particular, people who are professing Christians are neglecting their Bibles. I mean, it, it seems to me that it would be awfully easy to play on social media more than doing you know, the harder work, but the more necessary work of spending time with the Lord. H- how do you see that kind of weighing in on, on this whole influence that we see of smartphones and screens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it, it obviously has an effect, and, and we're seeing it big time. You know, not only can the phone be a distraction, but, you know, it, it kind of in a way creates sometimes when we don't have to deal with hard situations. There's, it's funny how in team circles there's a there's an unspoken rule of three. If you're standing there in a conversation, there's at least three people or more. If two people are engaging in a conversation and the third people has been out of the conversation – it's socially acceptable for them to pick up their phone and look at it yeah. because the other two are talking. That's called the rule of three. And it's interesting because in the past where someone would be standing there and they would probably, you know, kind of in a way feel like, well, maybe I should engage in the conversation. Maybe I do something because I'm just standing here. Now, again, it's this escape. It's uh, I can avoid the conversation because I've got this nice little device here that can just that I can go to while I'm distracted, bored, whatever. So it is interesting how we're starting to see, you know, uh, attention span shortened. Um, does this affect our Bible reading? Absolutely. Now, again, I'm not going to demonize the smartphone because the smartphone happens to have really cool things. I mean, I use a Bible app, and one thing that's cool about the Bible app is, man, you could take notes. You could. My, my wife and I, it's it's awesome. We actually like share these, do these reading plans, and the thing that's so fun is. You know, we can actually comment on the reading plan, and so we send each other notes and that kind of stuff about what we read that day. So these are things that we can actually use where the phone can be for good. And really what it comes down to as mom and dad, what are we modeling with our spiritual lives? Mm -hmm. What are we modeling? Because if we're spending time in the Lord, whether it be reading an analog paper Bible or our digital Bible, (laughs) you know, if we're spending time with the Lord and... We're, you know, uh, getting to know him and he's affecting us and changing us. That is going to spill over out of our lives and our kids are going to see that. If we model this kind of conversation in our homes, if we say, hey, no tech at the table and we model what good conversation across the dinner table looks like and talking about spiritual things and talking about what's going on in our own life, not just, you know, modeling it and talking about it. Um, this is the kind of stuff that's going to impact our family big time. But if we ourselves are so distracted to our devices that we're ignoring some of these needs with our kids, it's absolutely going to have an effect. Well, right. And you've mentioned something that's very simple people can all do, which is to say no screens at the table when we're having dinner together or maybe we're having lunch together. We can't have our phones at the table. 
and life will go on. If somebody yeah. calls, you can call them back <laughs> after lunch or after dinner. You know, these sorts of things. It seems maybe going in these very small steps, you can make small changes. But I think that, you know, the goal is really important, Jonathan, and that is to try to connect people, especially your teenagers, with other people and not always having to pick up the smartphone or go to Instagram or Snapchat or any of the other social media sites in order to make that happen. Well, you can learn more with the Teen's Guide to Face-to-Face Connections in a Screen-to-Screen World by Jonathan McKee and his daughter Alyssa. And again, if you'd like to check out more about Jonathan's ministry, you can do so by going to his website, and that is becomingscreenwise.com. Jonathan, so good to have you here, and we're really appreciative of your work and, and being with us today. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Take care. God bless you. And thanks for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time as well. God bless you. This hour of Janet Meffer today has been brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine based on the true story of championship winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters everywhere Christmas Day.